0: Let's uh, now hear God speak his word. This is from the 15th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 32. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is Jesus responding to Pharisees and scribes. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he call, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance or what woman having ten silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it and when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took on a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be With hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son, his older son, was in the field. And as he came and draw near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for this scripture. Lord, we ask your blessing on this time. Lord, let the words that I speak be your words. Lord, let them come out, and you have your spirit move and work as you will. Lord, we ask your blessing on this time. Amen. So I'm going to try something a little different today. I feel a little bit like a tightrope walker that's had the net removed from underneath him. But I think this, uh, what we're gonna talk about today, the parables lend themselves to um, a discourse like this. And I apologize, um, we're gonna have a several slides that'll have some of the scripture and a few other things up there, but I, I tend to do things later, closer to the deadline. Um, and uh, some people call that procrastination. I call it strategic timing. Uh, so there are some uh, scripture verses and things I'm going to have that aren't going to be up here, but I'll try to make sure I quote them well. When we were dividing up Luke, as we decided to move, uh, continue preaching through Luke during this interim period, and we were dividing up who would preach, and Gary got the short straw of having to do the first one last week and talk about um, <clears throat> the cost of discipleship. Um, I said I would do this one on Luke 15, on these the lost parables. It gives them kind of an Indiana Jones feel, the lost parables. And I thought, great, it's a familiar parable. In fact, it's one of the two probably best-known parables that Jesus ever spoke, next to the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son. They have uh, application outside the Bible, outside of churches, into the real world. People use these terms, Prodigal Son, Good Samaritan, in everyday language. I thought, oh, great, this will be good, because this is something common, and and people have heard this, and it'll be good. And then I got studying. I got, oh, no. This is common. People have heard this. I mean, how many of you have heard a sermon on the, the prodigal son before? Most of you. So then the pressure starts to become and build on, okay, now I've got to come up with something you haven't heard before, right? I've got to show you an angle to this story you might not have seen. And that's a trap, especially when it comes to parables. Parables. Jesus uses parables to preach, to, to tell stories to people that are relatable to them. He uses characters and settings that they can relate to. And usually there is one main point. Might be some other additional points, but there's usually one main point in the parables. They aren't allegories. Not everything in a story has a different meaning than what it is in a story. In the Good Samaritan, the bandages are bandages. They're not in something else. So you have to avoid the trap of trying to read more into these than what Jesus is trying to convey. So that's what we'll try to do and we'll, we'll talk about this and, it, and we'll talk about why it really is not the story of the prodigal son. It uh, goes much beyond that. So let's, let's look at the first part of the verse and part of this I'm going to be reading along with you. So now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing, all drawing near to him. This comes just after what Gary talked about last week, when Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship and many who were following him left at that point. But the tax collectors and sinners are still drawing near to him. Now, tax collectors, you, you'll, you remember or know why the tax collectors are always grouped with sinners, right? They were despised by the Jewish people. These are Jews who uh, bid out and were auctioned off provinces as part of the Roman territories to collect taxes for the Romans. And they would say, we'll collect X number of dollars in taxes, and they bid on these provinces, and they get them, and then their job is to collect those taxes and turn them over to the Romans. Anything they collected above and beyond that, they pocketed. So they were rife with uh, uh, dishonesty and overcharging of people, and the Jews... Consider them traitors, collaborators with the Romans, helping the Romans continue to oppress them. And then sinners. It's kind of an all-encompassing term, but it generally means those on the fringes of society, the lame, the sick, uh, the poor, prostitutes, people in other occupations, thieves, those are the people who are drawing near to Jesus. What he is saying is still drawing them in. And the other group is following along, listening closely, always trying to catch Jesus in something if they can, are the scribes and the Pharisees. And what's their response to Jesus being with the s- sinners? They grumbled, they murmured, different, depends on which translation you use. They're talking amongst themselves, and they say, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. And remember in this culture, eating with someone was a very close uh, relational experience. To eat with someone was to um, essentially condone them or to, to associate with them and be identified with them. It was very personal. And so they, the Pharisees and scribes saw this as Jesus associating with... Uh, with these sinners, and then by associating with them, he would become unclean himself. That's the Pharisees and scribes stayed away from these people because they didn't want to become unclean in their mind. So Jesus hears them grumbling of why is he gathering with and eating with these people? And so he tells them this parable. And notice it says this parable. These three parables really are read as one parable. Big parable. The two first ones, the one about the lost sheep and the coin, set up the third one, which is a much bigger story than the first two. So he tells them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Interesting that he's asking this. Remember, this story is being directed to the Pharisees and the scribes, right, in response to their murmuring. These men wouldn't know a day's hard labor in their life. Right? These are wealthy, set aside. They wouldn't know what to do with a sheep as well well, as going after one of them. First so it's interesting Jesus points to this. And if anything else, they hire someone to go after a lost sheep. Right? They wouldn't be doing it themselves. Plus, they might say, I've got 100. Loss of 1%. I can live with that. I can live with those. And it's funny, Jesus uses sheep here. Throughout the Bible, humans, God's, cre- God's creation, us, are often referred to as sheep. Isaiah 53.6 all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Jesus. Jesus talks about looking out, being, calls himself the good shepherd, the good shepherd of the flock, of the sheep. We're, humans are referred to as sheep. Anybody here a sheep farmer? I grew up around farms, uh, so I know cattle, I know hogs. I didn't have any experience with sheep. But from what I read and what I've understood, sheep are like probably one of the dumbest animals there are. They're also completely defenseless. They have no way to defend themselves in the wild. They have no horns. They, their teeth aren't used good for biting in that. Their, their hooves, they just, they're helpless. Without a shepherd, they're lost. Is it any wonder God uses the sheep to describe us? So, and, well, here's another thing about sheep, is what I understand. Sheep are always looking for greener pastures. So they're out grazing with the shepherds, and the sheep says, oh, it's greener over here. So he's over here, and he keeps moving, and he keeps moving. And sheep apparently are so stupid that they'll get into places they can't get out of. That sound familiar? whether it be on a cliff or in a valley or in in thickets. And when you hear this story of, of the lost sheep, what do you think of? When you think of that lost sheep, what, what's the image that comes to mind? Is it, is it this? Or maybe this? A lot of times Jesus is inserted as the shepherd. Or maybe this? And you can't really see it, but there's in other versions of this painting, I've seen there's been a big halo around his head, so it's no, no question of who he's representing. But almost, in almost every picture that people paint of the, the lost sheep, they paint the sheep in some sort of distress, right? The sheep is trapped in the briar and the bramble, or he's down in a valley, or he's up on a cliff, and the shepherd has to use extraordinary measures to rescue him. Gary, can we go back to the scripture? Sorry. And I'm going to be doing this to Gary, so I apologize ahead of time to him. I've already, I already apologized to him ahead of time, uh, but to you guys. So, so he's saying, and the other thing was we, we as God throughout the Bible, God calls uh, us people as sheep, and he calls the religious leaders to be shepherds of the sheep. And what he's telling the, the Pharisees here is that you should have been good shepherds to these, these people, this flock, right? You should, have been, you should be the ones going after them. You should be the ones sitting and dining and eating with them and getting to know them and bringing them in. But which, So he points this to them. Which one of you wouldn't have gone after the one? Leave the one and, and go after him until he finds it. Relentless, doesn't give up. Going to search until he finds that sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and takes it back to the flock, restores it to the flock, doesn't chastise the sheep, doesn't make it go, um, kick it, you know, all the way back, hitting it with his staff, doesn't rebuke the sheep. He takes the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and carries it home. You can go to the other image then, Gary? And the other thing, too, I notice a lot of times, it's, it's lambs that are often painted as the lost sheep. Uh, they make cuter pictures, I think, part of it. But this could have been an adult sheep. This could have been a ewe that walked off, and they're over 100 pounds. And the shepherd lifts it up, puts the sheep on it, would tie its feet, gives them the opportunity to have a hand free for his staff and as well as another one for balance as he's climbing back through the hills, valleys, to get back and restore the sheep to the flock. Okay, let's go back to the scripture. So when he comes home, when he brings the sheep back and restores it to the flock, he calls together all his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He calls his friends, shares in the joy of finding the lost sheep just so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needed no repentance now two things to talk about here one the statement that i will be there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents According to William Barclay, who wrote a, a commentary on the New Testament, that there was a common saying among the religious leaders of Jesus' time that went something like this. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That the religious leaders looked at the obliteration of sinners as something that heaven would take joy in. So Jesus' statement here is is likely in direct response to that. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Now, we know that we all need to repent. We are all sinful. Paul tells us we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's Jesus saying here? More than likely, what he's saying is this is a dig at the, the Pharisees he's talking about that you think you are righteous you think you are right with god and you don't need to repent but you are so wrong and jesus said something very similar to this earlier in luke luke five thirty two, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance again he was speaking to pharisees at the time And it's pretty clear that what he's saying is you think you don't need repentance, but you do. Okay, parable of the lost sheep. Joy in heaven. God celebrates, takes joy in the finding of the lost. God has a heart for the lost. Moving on. So now he tells them the second parable. Or... What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, these silver coins are called drachmas, and it's the only time that word is used in in the the Bible, drachma, for these silver coins. And each coin is, is approximately a day's wage. Now, what is unique about these coins is that the women would often as part of a dowry or, or a gift from their husband, would have these coins in a um, headwear and that they would wear around their heads with the coins. And there would be ten of them. So th- those are very special, very valuable to them. And so to lose one was a, a, a real area of concern that she, the headdress wouldn't, headwear wouldn't be complete without all ten of them. So she panics, you know, and, and lights a lamp. Remember, these, these households, they don't have windows like we have in our households. It's very dark places, so to find anything, they'd have to light a lamp and sweep. Remember, these are dirt floors, maybe some stone, easy places for coins to get dropped into and be found. In fact, archaeologists love going finding places like this because when they clear out the rocks, they'll find all sorts of stuff that's dropped down into the stones and the dirt floor. So she sweeps it and seeks diligently until she finds it. She does not stop until she finds it searches the house with the lamp till she finds it. And then what happens when she finds it? She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's a different way to say that, before the angels of God. Well, who's before the angels of God? God himself. God himself celebrates. And, the angel, and it's almost as if, and I had one commentator say it, that the great owner himself, his, it is his property that's been redeemed. So vast and exuberant is this joy, it's as if he could not keep it to himself. And he calls his friends and neighbors, his celestial family, the angels, and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found that which was lost. God calls the angels together, celebrates, and takes joy in the fact that a sinner has been redeemed. So his point, these first two parables, his point is he's talking to the Pharisees and saying, you turn from these lost ones, these sinners, these tax collectors, and because I do not do the same, you murmur about it. But there's a very different feeling in heaven. There the recovery of even one such outcast is hailed with joy, nor are they left to come home for themselves or perish, for the great shepherd is going after his lost sheep, the owner is going after his lost property, and he is finding it. And he will bring it back. He will restore it, puts it back in the headdress, puts it back in the flock, and all of heaven will take joy in it. So if that's not enough to explain to the Pharisees and the scribes why Jesus is associating with sinners and tax collectors, he gives them this. And he said, continuing on, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. What's the son saying to the father here? Dad, I really like all the wealth you've accumulated, and I know that someday it's going to come to me. And I've waited a while, but you haven't died yet. And I can't wait any longer for you to die. I want my share now. Give me my share of your inheritance. And essentially what he's saying is, I don't want anything to do with you, Dad. I love your stuff. I don't love you. Give me me my share of the stuff, and I'm going to go on my way. This would be enough in that society for the father to physically take the son and throw him out of the house and to say, that's it. You, You are disowned. You are done. I am through with you. And no one in the community would bat an eye at that other than saying, you did exactly right, Dad. That's not what the father does in this story. He gives the son what he wants. But notice, too, that what the, what the son is doing here. The son is dictating what the relationship is with the father, and that is no relationship. But it's the son who's saying, I don't, want, I don't love you, I don't want to be with you. I only want what you can give me. I don't want you. The son dictates the relationship here. So the father takes his property and divides it. Now, it's not as if dad had a million dollars in gold coins and he gave his son 300,000 of it. His wealth is tied up in his property, in his livestock, in his land. So to be able to give the son what he's asking, he has to sell off some of his property, some of his land. And in this society, you were you known by the land that you had. The land possessed you. You didn't possess the land. You were identified with your land. So not only does he ridicule his father, and he embarrasses him in the society because everyone in town now knows what's going on, and he's got to do this quickly, so he's basically having a fire sale, to get rid of, the, be able to sell off the property that he can and the livestock so his son, can, so he can pay his son the money. So everyone knows what's going on. People are probably taking advantage of the fact that he's having to do this quickly. So he's having to sell off for less than its value. This is all humiliating to the father. Plus, he has to endure the fact that he's, his son tells him he doesn't love him. But. He's going to give the son what he wants, what he's asked for. So he sells, he divides his property between them. And that day, the, the oldest son got twice as much as anybody else. So with two sons, the older son would get two-thirds, the younger son would get one-third. So he sells off the property but he is, gives the son the equivalent of a third in money. And then the son t- gathers all that he had, took a journey to, into a far country. He gets as far away from home. he can get as far away from dad as I can get I'm going out on my own gonna be my own person I'm gonna strike my own way I'm gonna find my own self and there he squanders the property in reckless living probably trying to buy friends in a new country spending money here and there people taking advantage of him Uh, there's an indication later on that he spends some of it on prostitutes clearly it's reckless living and then what happens He spends everything. And a severe famine arises in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He's a Jew. Pigs are unclean. You don't associate with pigs. He has stooped about as low as he can stoop to to allow himself to be out there in the swill, in the pigsty, feeding the pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything he is at rock bottom on the verge of starving to death what happens he came to himself realizes what he's been doing thinks back to home the place he abandoned, the place he wanted to run so far away from, and he remembers that his father's hired servants have more than enough bread. But here I am. I perish with here with hunger. So he comes up with a plan. Here's his idea. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Some people say this is his act of repentance. I don't think so. It's a scheme. It's a plan. I'm going to go back and say the things I need to say, and he might even acknowledge that it might be true. But what's the? But I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But treat me as one of your hired servants. So hired servants. These were people that um, tradesmen in the town or whatever. They received wages. So what he's thinking is, I can establish myself, maybe I um, have to apprentice somebody for a while, but then I can start earning some money and I can start to pay dad back. That will get me back into the household. That will get me back accepted into uh, the community because he would have been ostracized by the community for what he's done. But by trying to get restitution and coming up with a scheme, it's a way for him to get back in. Also notice, he's still trying to control the relationship. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell dad this and I'm going to say, hire me as one of your servants. And that'll be our relationship then. So he gets up and goes to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So what's the father been doing? Right? He's been waiting. He's been watching. Every day he gets up attends to what he needs to, and you can just imagine him standing on the porch of the the home, looking out at the road, every day watching for his son to come back, waiting for the day that he will return. And when he sees him, he is filled with compassion, and he runs out to greet him. Middle Eastern men, especially men of, of wealth, do not run. They have long, flowing robes. And to be able to run in those, you'd have to hitch him up or, or uh, gird, gird him to your loins. We talked about that once before. And you have to show his legs. That would be embarrassing to a man of his stature in this community. He doesn't care. He runs out to meet him. Plus, he might want to get to his son before anybody else in the town gets to him. So he runs out to him, embraced him, and I think some versions say he threw him threw himself around his neck and kisses him. And the son says, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I think the difference here is he is overwhelmed. He truly means it now. And this is this is the act of repentance. He truly means it now. He is overwhelmed by the father's display of love for him, by his father's display of compassion. And he can't even get to the second part. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to become your son. And he leaves it to the father to tell him what relationship they're going to have. Some commentators will say, as we get to the next part, that the father cuts him off and doesn't give him a chance. I think... He doesn't get, he doesn't say it because he's overwhelmed by the father's show of love for him. But the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. That would be his robe, probably. He would have the best robe in the house. Put it on him. The son is dressed, is is in rags. Probably, what's amazing to me is the father even recognized him at this point. He would have been emaciated. He would have been, you know, from, from the lack of food, in rags, covered with dirt. And I'm sure he smelled horribly. Father doesn't care. Father still recognizes him from a great distance, still runs up to him, still throws himself around him, covers him with kisses, despite his filth, and brings a robe. Cover him now with the best robe and put on him the ring which would indicate his restoration into the family, which would indicate authority as a son again. Put shoes on his feet. Again, would indicate he's not a slave, he's not a servant. Uh, Only people of the, the masters in the household would wear shoes. The servants and slaves all were barefoot. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate the fatted calf. Meat was not a normal part of every meal. It was a special occasion to eat meat the fatty calf was raised in in particular ways and fed specific grains and and grasses so that it would be um, for the best eating and it was kept for only major, major celebrations. Bring the fat, and why? My son, this my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Father's son is restored to him. He restores him to the family, makes him a son again, loves him dearly, wants to celebrate his restoration to the family, that he was, he was lost, he's found, he's dead and alive. Now you could end the story here, and it would be very similar to the first two, other than now we're dealing with humans. And you've got this, this act of, of repentance, repentance, and love. But notice what came first in this story. Father's love came before the repentance. The Father provides the love and comfort and compassion before the repentance. But Jesus doesn't leave the story here because he's got a point to make to those Pharisees and scribes. Now, there, there was the older brother. And he was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he calls one of the servants out. He says, what do these things mean? And the servant says to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. So what's the, the, the brother's response? My brother's back? He's home? Oh, fantastic. No. No. But he was angry and refused to go in. He throws what is, I believe, the Middle Eastern term for a hissy fit at this point. He refused to go in. His father has a celebration going on. They have the fatted calf. Everyone in town would have been invited to this celebration. And he stands outside and refuses to go in. This is an embarrassment to the father. Again, a son is humiliating his father. By not going inside. So the father has to go out to him. No father in that culture would do this. They wouldn't stoop to that. But this father does. He goes out and he entreats the son. He pleads with him. He begs with him. That, that word entreated means it's a kind of a continual ongoing. He didn't shout at him. He didn't order him. He pleads with him. He begs with him, son, come inside. Come inside. But the the elder son answers his father, look. Do you ever have one of your kids address you like that? Say, look. What's your first response? Oh, 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 hold on. That's not how we're going to start this conversation. That's also an act of, of humiliation to the father. He can't even call, he doesn't even address him as his father. He says, look, buddy. Look, Mac. Look, These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed you or disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. How does the elder son see himself? Sees himself as a servant. Sees himself as a slave to his father. He's defining the relationship with the father here. I have served you. I have slaved for you." Other, other um, versions of this talk about more of slaving. I have slaved for you. I have been indebted to you. I have done the things that you have asked me. I have obeyed every one of your commands. I've never done anything to make you um, ashamed of me or, uh, or, or that, that brought shame on you or humiliated you. I have done everything you've asked. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you can't even call him his brother, but this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the cat-fatted calf for him. Is this son any different than the other one? He's defined his relationship with his father as servant master and the reason he's serving him is to get the things he wants from him he hasn't gotten them you should have given me these things you should have given me a, a goat so I could celebrate with my friends he sees that how he gets what he wants from the father is by doing all the right things right all the good things I have been obedient I followed every rule I've done everything that you've said Therefore, you owe me, Father, you owe me what I want. What's the Father's response? Son. Some virgins say, my son. And the translation of the word could be child as well, but my child, my son. Everything I have is yours. You have been always with me. This is all yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this was your brother who was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. Son, you don't get it. Everything I have is yours. You could have had a goat at any time. You don't don't know me at all which is what the fathers wanted all along from his sons, is to, to know him, to know his heart, to know what he's about. But neither one of the sons wanted that. Neither one wanted to know who he was. Neither one wanted to know his heart. They wanted what he could give them. But celebrate, because your son is dead. Your brother is dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he is found. This father doesn't rebuke his sons when those younger sons ask for the, the inheritance. The older son goes through this whole thing about being a slave. He doesn't rebuke either of them. He only speaks words of love to them. What the, what the elder brother doesn't say, he's, it's essentially what he's saying is, look at what you've given him, the fatted calf. He doesn't deserve this. father says, you're right, he doesn't but you can't earn it either. Is it any wonder Pharisees and the scribes start to plot to kill Jesus? Clearly, he's painted them as the older brother here. That they follow all the rules All of God's laws they obey to the letter, and they think that's what makes them holy. And they think that's what makes them righteous. And they think that's what brings them close to God. But they've never, ever sought to know God's heart and to know who God is. You could see why they'd be angry at that. But this story doesn't just apply. Right to the Pharisees applies to us as well. At one time or another, we've all been one of the brothers, right? The younger brother, the sinner, who goes off on his own, who who abandons God, turns his back on God, goes his own way. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to serve myself. Or we've been the older brother. we think that if we do everything God tells us to, we go to church every Sunday, we read the Bible, we pray, we follow all the rules, God will owe us. God will do what we need him to do for us because we've done what we think he's wanted us to do. In fact, it's been said that one of the ways, one of the best ways to hide from Jesus is to not sin. Because when you don't sin, when you don't break any of the rules, what do you need a Savior for? But Jesus turns this all upside down. And if you've ever read Tim Keller's The Prodigal God, I encourage you to do that because a lot of what I'm saying here comes from that. But Jesus turns that upside down and and points to the Pharisees and tells them, that's as big a sin as what you're seeing in these people thinking that you can do everything that God tells you to do, follow all the rules and force God to give you what you want from him. So it's at this point, um, so these are the religious people, right? These are the religious ones. They, They obey God to get things from God gospel people, Christians, believers in Christ, understanding God's heart. We obey God to get God. We obey God. We follow follow Jesus. Obey His commands because we want more of him. We want to know God's heart. God's heart is for the lost. God has a heart for the lost. Jesus has a heart for the lost. Jesus says later on in Luke, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I invite you this morning to figure out where you are in these stories. Are you the lost sheep? Have you wandered off and now you're caught in your sin, away from the Father, away from the flock, unable to find your way back, thinking that you're completely lost? Are you the coin? Notice it's lost in the house, right? Do you come to church each Sunday but don't feel a part of what's going on? Do you wonder about God and Jesus and just feel like you're not part of things? Are you the coin in the house, lost? Are you the younger brother? Having turned your back on God, have gone so far away, you, turn, you wake up one morning and feel, realize how far off and away from God you are, caught in your sin. Are you the older brother? right, Trying to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons trying to get God to give you what you want. Older, elder brothers can't stand or hate the fact that God is so graceful, right? That God is full of grace. And one of the things you wonder how you can recognize, maybe if you're an older brother, is you know, the, the parable of the field workers where the people at the end of the day got the same wages as the other people that started the same day. Do you get mad at that story? Do you get angry and say that is unfair? I can't believe God would do that. You might be an elder brother. Or you think about the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, who, at the very end, when the end is near, acknowledges who Jesus is, and Jesus says, "You will be with me today in paradise." Are you angry about that? Does that rile you that at the last minute, someone can step in and be safe like that? You might be an elder brother. Jesus tells a story to call us all in, to recognize where we are, that it's just as sinful to be out there committing all sorts of sins. It's just as sinful to be keeping yourself from God's heart, doing all the things that you think you should be because of God, God will give you because of that. What should the elder brother have done? As a good elder brother, what should he have done? If he had known his father's heart, if he had understood who his father really was, if he knew his father's compassion, number one, he should have stepped in and kept the younger son from going in the first place. Should have talked to his younger brother, said, this is not what you need to do. You need to stay here. You need to know the father and be provided for here. But even if the son had gone off, seeing the grief that his father was, uh, was undergoing, the agony of, of rejected love that the father was experiencing, should have said, Dad, I'm, I'll go out and I'll find him. I'll bring him home to you. I know how much he means to you, and I'm going to go out and find him. And would have gone out and searched for the younger brother. And when he found him, knowing that he probably had spent all of his money, brought him home at whatever cost it took. Even at the cost of his own life. Do you see that we have a good elder brother? Jesus is our elder brother. Jesus goes out, knowing the Father's heart, knowing the Father's heart for the lost. Jesus goes out and searches for them, searches for the lost, till he finds them for his Father. Jesus, the Son of Man, was sent to, to find and save the lost. He is the good shepherd. So what's our response to be, right? What should we respond to that? Once we acknowledge the fact that we're either an elder brother or the younger brother and we, we uh, are reconciled with God and we are restored and we, um, the word escapes my mind, um, we repent of our sins to be restored to the Father, what should we do? Now I'm not trying to add anything into the story, like I warned about it the first part, but I think it's pretty clear what Jesus is wanting us to do. Each one of the first three gospels have at the end Jesus saying some sort of great commission, or great command. In Matthew, "Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Mark." And he said to them, "Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, Luke, and that the repentance of, for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His, meaning Christ's name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We are instructed by Christ to go out and preach the gospel to everyone. Remember the the parable that was just before um, we talked about last week, the um, cost of discipleship. The parable that came just before that was of the great feast, where the owner... The, the, the master of the house was going to prepare a great feast. He invited a bunch of people, and on the day of the feast, he sends out his servants to invite everyone, and they have all these excuses. I just bought some land. I just got married. I just washed my hair. You know, Whatever it was, It were commonplace, stupid examples that they couldn't come to be bothered to come to the, the master's feast. So he says, go out and find people in the town and bring them in. And the servant does that and says, Master, we still have more. He goes, go out and compel the people outside of town to come and serve. And Eric preached on this before, um, several, about a month and a half ago, and he talked about, you know, don't, we may not want to compel people, but we should be compelling, right? We should be proclaiming the gospel to the lost people and, com- and be compelling such that they want to be able to come and know more about God and know more about Jesus. That's what God is asking us to do. That's what Jesus is instructing us to do. And the last one, this is from Matthew 9. When he, that's being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We are the laborers. We are who God sends out to help him find his lost sheep. That's our calling. And that's what we should be doing as a church, and that's what we should be doing as individuals. God doesn't want slaves. He wants a relationship. And he's there waiting for us. His love is there before you can even confess your sins. His love is there. His mercy is there. His grace is present and accounted for. Paul said it best, but God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories. We thank you for these parables. We thank you that you have a heart for the lost because, Lord, we are all lost. Some days we feel found. Other days we feel lost. Lord, we know, thank you for these stories. That We know you have a love for us, a compassion for us, and are ready to take us back at any time. Lord, we just need to turn to you, repent and turn to you, and you will throw your arms around us and welcome us home. Thank you, Lord.